Chapter 14 of The Browns at Mount Hermon by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 Mr. Brown and Mr. Browning. They drove to the assembly grounds together, Farmer Brown, his young daughter, and Kendall Browning. The fun of appearing to the boys in just that style compensated for the brisk walk the young man had meant to take by the shortcut, and helped to make him the jolliest companion that the farmer had enjoyed since he was himself a boy. What Professor Fallows called the hopeless levity of young Browning's nature had by this time pushed his disgrace and trouble quite into the background, or, more properly speaking, he had firmly and somewhat sternly ordered them into the background, with the emphatic statement that there would be time enough in all conscience to think about that, for this one night he should give himself up to a good time. So he laughed and chatted with the farmer, made conundrums for Libby, and told her jokes that convulsed her with laughter, and was withal so courteous to both father and daughter so thoughtful of their comfort and so kind and friendly in all that he said and did, that both were ready to sound his praises to any who would listen. It was while Dolly was making her leisurely way up the last ascent that Farmer Brown's strong voice suddenly rang out to a man who was just ahead of them, walking rapidly. "'Hey, hello, hold on, won't you? Ain't that Mr. Brown? I thought so. Got time to stop a minute? I want to introduce you to our preacher.' "'Good,' said Mr. Brown heartily. "'Perhaps he is the very man I want to see especially just now.' He told himself that he liked the boy nonetheless for the crimson flush that dyed his cheeks at the farmer's words. The probability was that the embryo minister was not used to hearing himself introduced as the preacher. "'Are you a Carmen College man, sir? Then I am very anxious to have a few words with you as soon as possible. Mr. Brown, suppose I borrow your guest to walk up the trail with me while you take Dolly around by the road. I want to enlist his services tonight, and there are some matters to be explained first. "'There's no question about that,' muttered Browning as he sprang from the wagon. Mentally he added, but I'm the fellow to explain, I fancy, instead of you, and I don't mean to do it. Brownie, you are in for it. See to it that you carry this thing through in your best style. His new friend's manner was that of a comrade. He linked his arm in his and began in a confidential tone. You are just exactly the man I want, Mr. Brown. Am I right? Is that the name? Not exactly, said Kendall. It's getting there, but it isn't done yet. My name is Browning. His companion broke into hearty laughter. Browning, is it? Well, that is a relief. I must be pardoned for thinking that of course it was Brown, for that seems to be the name of every third person one meets. Well now, Mr. Browning, I want to talk business, as we have very little time. Have you visited the assembly before? Then you have come at a unique time. We have guests from Carmen College this evening. Or else, we are the guests. I am not sure which way it should be stated. I know we invited ourselves. You came over for the lecture, I suppose? It's off. The speaker was providentially detained. In more senses than one, I am inclined to think. Let me state the situation briefly. One of the Sunday school workers, living not far from here, made an effort, at some self-sacrifice, I imagine, to have her Bible class of young men, at least half a dozen of them, spend the weekend at the assembly, with the hope, you understand, of interesting them in such meetings as we have here. They are good fellows in the main, some of them are inclined to be rather gay, and they are all out just now on what they consider a lark. Still, they were doing splendidly until this counter-attraction came up. Two of them have acquaintances at Carmen, and yesterday they received invitations to join some of the college boys, summer students, I am told, with a few of the rougher element from the town boys to help on, in a frolic to be held at one of the picnic grounds on the other side of this reservation. I haven't their program very clearly outlined, beyond the fact that there was to be a bonfire, and a supper with plenty of champagne and other objectionable accompaniments, and the people, who have suffered from these affairs before, were extremely anxious, and anticipated serious results for some. There is always a doubtful element in all large colleges, and some of them drift even into the summer schools, it seems. The one whose name I have heard the oftenest in connection with this affair is acquainted with two of our boys, and the teacher whom I mentioned is especially afraid of his influence. His name is Dennison. Do you know him? That's all right, then. I think the Lord sent you here tonight to help us. 
I had a feeling the moment I saw you that you were the one who could do it. Kendall Browning was glad for the cover of the night, with only faint glimmerings of moonlight through the trees. He knew that his face was ablaze, and he felt as though his brain was in a whirl. So this was the company that Dennison had assured him was just his style. Well, why should he not say so? Had he been given abundant excuse for such an estimate? Still, he had never carried champagne and a frolic into the midst of a religious gathering, and tried to undo earnest efforts at helping others. He had respected his mother too much for that, at least. But he had come out here this evening on purpose to help the boys. He had told himself that, being in disgrace anyhow, he might as well have what fun was to be got out of it, and he believed he knew how to manage both ends of his role. But it was growing increasingly difficult. There was good Farmer Brown and the innocent little girl, who had furnished his table with sweet peas, mother's flowers. They both believed in him. And here was this Mr. Brown, with his keen gray eyes and confident hand resting on his arm, claiming help. "'What are you planning?' he asked at last, feeling the necessity for saying something. "'A flank movement,' said Mr. Brown, smiling. "'We cannot forbid the frolic, of course, so we invited ourselves to join it. The management gave up the evening meeting entirely, and planned for a general gathering on the Zianti lawn, where we proposed to have a mammoth bonfire, and songs and stories and supper, and anything else in the way of recreation that the skillful and trustworthy can devise on short notice. Our good women have been at work all day, boiling and baking and frying. I can vouch for their part as a prospective success.' A few of us met the train and introduced ourselves to the Carmen boys, thanked them for their happy thought of an evening given over to fun, and begged the privilege of joining in. Then we represented the immense advantages that our ground had over the Redwood Flats that they had proposed, and begged them to move over to the Zianti lawn, offering every inducement we could think of, including barrels and boxes innumerable for the bonfire, and men to haul them. They were an astonished set of boys, I assure you, but their good breeding stood the strain. They treated us as gentlemen should, and after a half-dozen objections to our plan, all of which we overruled, they surrendered gracefully, and I think can be fairly depended upon to meet us halfway. I heard some loud laughter doubtless at my expense as I walked away, but I think their general intentions are good. What we need now is a sort of connecting link, which I feel sure you can supply. Our ladies should be properly introduced, you know, and all such little matters arranged in accordance with the customs of well-behaved people, and I believe in my soul that you are here for that purpose. Depend upon it. The Lord is in it." During the first half of this explanation, Kendall Browning's mind underwent a variety of changes. Perplexity over the inner-twisted meshes of the scrape into which he had got himself, disgust with Dennison, who seemed to him in some way to blame for helping him into such a mess, fun over the counter-movement that this quick-witted Mr. Brown had evidently planned, by which a wild frolic—and none understood better than he how wild a frolic Carmen boys could plan on occasion—was being turned into a Sunday-school picnic affair. And then suddenly a vision of his mother— and a shiver of pain over the history of failure that he was carrying to her, and a troubled, wistful look bestowed on Mr. Brown under cover of the deepening twilight. "'The devil is in it,' he had told himself angrily, as he turned from his interview with Professor Fallows. Yet here was a manly voice with a strong and reverent ring, saying, "'The Lord is in it.' Which was right? What a thing it would be to be the sort of fellow that this man evidently thought him. He could be. "'You are a leader, you know,' Professor Fallows had said, and he knew that this was true." "'Sutton couldn't have helped them out,' he said to himself, as a vision of the thin, pale, short-sighted, spectacled man whose place he was supposed to be taking appeared to him. Sutton was afraid of the boys—of all boys, indeed—and would as soon think of trying to lead a herd of wild buffaloes as the mildest of the Carmen students. Suddenly Kendall Browning threw back his head with the air of a victor, and spoke with a note in his voice that gave his companion confidence. "'All right, Mr. Brown, you may count on me to help the thing through in every way that I can.' And Mr. Brown, looking on well pleased, only half understood how royal was the help he gave that evening. 
The Carmen boys crowded round him the moment he appeared, eager to be led by him, and brimful of some secret of their own which they were anxious to impart, but he gave them no chance. "'Hush!' he said, lifting a warning finger at Dennison, who began with a bewildered, "'What in thunder?' then stopped, arrested by that warning finger and an imperative shake of the head. It was then that Dennison caught on, as he told the others. "'Brownie was up to something,' he assured them. He didn't understand it fully, but he was evidently behind this whole affair, and the best thing they could do if they wanted to be in it was to fall into line. So they fell into line, and Browning moved among them like a king. They obeyed even the lift of his eyebrows, all the while holding themselves in readiness to explode with mirth whenever the point of the joke should be made apparent. It was a remarkable evening. There was plenty of fun, and almost continuous bursts of laughter. There was the most wonderful bonfire in the memory of Carmen and all other college men and women. There were college songs and college yells. Certain gray-haired and much-titled men volunteered to give the special yell and sing the special song of their own faraway colleges. There were improvisations in which, this being his special field, young Browning shone preeminent, albeit he stoutly and with an emphasis that was not to be misunderstood refused Dennison's pleadings for a repetition of certain efforts that had convulsed the Carmen boys but a few nights before. When opportunity offered for a hurried whisper, Dennison heard this. "'We've got to have things in keeping this evening, and don't you forget it. I won't do one of those stunts tonight the two boys are after, not if you yell yourselves hoarse, and the sooner you get the fellows to understand, the better time they will have. They accepted the invitation to come over here, and they must live up to it. But you'll have a good time all right, and as for the joke, there is joke enough to last for a lifetime. If you watch out long enough, you can't help seeing it." One of the things he meant was that they should have a good time, and he kept himself continually on the alert, and knew that they were having it. Then came the feast, eaten in the light of that magnificent bonfire, and what a feast it was! Certainly the women who had been in their kitchens all that day made good Mr. Brown's word for them. Never did chicken pie and chicken and ham sandwiches taste as they tasted that evening, to say nothing of the potatoes and corn that were roasted in hot ashes before their eyes. As for the cakes and pies— "'Oh, the pies!' groaned Dennison, putting tears into his voice. "'Boys, for the first time in my life I understand Alexander and feel that I am one with him. He wept because there were no more worlds to conquer, and I weep because there are no more stomachs to conquer pies.' Yet through it all the Carmen College boys were struggling with a puzzling question. What did it all mean? Or as they phrased it, what was Brownie up to anyhow? It was growing late. In a very short time the express on which they must return to college would sound its warning whistle at the station above, and they had not yet discovered the point of the joke. "'Look here,' said Dennison, catching at his friend's sleeve as he was attempting to rush swiftly past. "'Now I say, what in thunder does all this—' "'Hush up,' said Browning peremptorily. Haven't you had the tallest feed that was ever got up at a picnic? I'm too full for utterance along that line, Brownie, but all the same I say— Don't say anything, dear boy, mum's the word. Just go home in peace and comfort and sleep the sleep of a good boy who has helped his fellow out of more scrapes than he knows of. I'll tell you all about it as soon as I find out myself. Just now I don't know where the end is, I don't, honest, but it's sure to end, and it's big, too, I can tell you. Bow, well, you might as well keep still, old chap, before I won't say anything more, not if you choke me. Hello, that's your train whistling this minute at the up station. It will be on you in a jiffy. What is the fellow up to? This was the reiterated exclamation of the Carmen boys, as they crowded about one another on the train to talk things over. I'm blessed if I understand a thing about it, owned one of the leaders. I kept waiting for the climax, and it didn't climax. I think it did, said Dennison, with a sudden outburst of laughter. Wasn't that last scene climax enough? Think of us fellows standing about as sober as a board of deacons, joining with all our might in the long-meter doxology and Brownie leading off. They roared in unison over the remembrance. It sounded fine, though, one broke off to say. 
That fellow can sing as well as he can do most things that he wants to. I think the doxology was a fitting close to the whole performance. There wasn't a word said nor sung this blessed evening that that psalm-singing crowd couldn't have joined in if they knew enough. And the champagne baskets are going back as heavy as they came. Isn't the joke on us fellows somehow? But I don't mind if it is. We had a jolly good time. And there won't be any headaches nor demerits to score up against this night's performance, which will be new for us, certainly. All the same, I should like to understand just what Brownie is about. End of chapter 14